0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello everyone. I'm Emma Norris, the Director of Research at the Institute for Government, and I'm delighted to be chairing this event today um, on whether the role of the Lord Chancellor should be reformed. The role of the Lord Chancellor is to protect and uphold the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary. Yet the position is held by a Cabinet Minister, the Secretary of State for Justice. The overlap between the independent judiciary and the political world and the balance of power between parliament, government and the judiciary is the source of much debate and disagreement. And we're seeing lots of this disagreement at the moment, with simmering simmering tensions between the legal profession and the government, debate about the Northern Ireland Protocol and yesterday the publication of controversial legislation to introduce a British Bill of Rights. I'm joined by a fantastic set of speakers and panellists to discuss the role of the Lord Chancellor in this context. We're joined by Sir Robert Buckland, a former former Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice, who's going to open the event with a speech setting out his vision for the role and how it should be reformed. Then we've got responses from Baroness Butler-Loss, a former judge and the first female Lord Justice of Appeal. And Sir Jonathan Jones, former Treasury Solicitor, Head of the Government Legal Service and former Permanent Secretary of the Government Legal Department. Um, It's worth saying that this event is on the record. We're being live streamed as we speak. Um, Please do send in your questions as early as you'd like. Uh, You can post these in the Q&A function on the right of your screen and it will be very helpful when posting questions if you could include your name and where you're coming from for context. Um, I'll make sure that we have got at least 20 minutes um, in the final third of the discussion for audience questions. We'll be live tweeting the event from IFG events and using the hashtag IFG Lord Chancellor so without further ado Robert I'm going to hand over to you uh, to talk through your vision for the role
1: well thank you very much indeed Emma and I hope you can uh, hear me clearly and it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, friends and indeed everybody online today Uh, and I think uh, it's a really uh, timely uh, moment for this important debate. And the role of Lord Chancellor is an ancient one. It predates the Norman Conquest. But I think really the last 20 years have seen quite a dramatic change in its status and indeed in its function. And I want to track things back to the 2005 Constitutional Reform Act, which was only part of a process that between 2003 and 2007, saw those major changes to the role. Uh, Badgett had described the Lord Chancellor's role as a bag of anomalies. Uh, I think I prefer my predecessor Lord Elwyn Jones and my fellow Welshman who described it in his inimitable way as an object of wonder and perplexity. Uh, But many others have described the role as a linchpin of the constitution, bringing together the executive, judiciary and legislature in one person. Uh, That linchpin, after the 05 Act was no more. But it was in 2003 that the decision by the then Prime Minister Tony Blair to dismiss his Lord Chancellor and to replace him, which was accompanied by a media announcement that the office itself was to be abolished. Now after a hasty U-turn based upon the realisation that uh, the office is referred to directly in primary legislation many hundreds of times, the position was in fact retained. The new Lord Chancellor, however, took a different role from his predecessor. A new department, the Department of Constitutional Affairs, was set up dealing with the courts, with legal aid and constitutional reform issues. And the Lord Chancellor sat astride it. Uh, He took a self-denying ordinance not to sit in judicial cases. And a Concordat was reached with the then Lord Chief Justice, which ended effectively the Lord Chancellor's role as a member of the judiciary. Indeed, it was that document that governed my own resignation from the judiciary as a Crown Court recorder back in 2019, when after some uh, anxious thought, I decided that Paris, after all, was worth a mass. And then the 2005 Act was debated and passed. It wasn't presaged by a Green Paper or indeed a consultation process, which I think was highly regrettable given its importance. I'm not going to dwell in uh, this paper about the changes that led to the creation of the Supreme Court, which I think are best left for a fuller discussion. But the Act uh, at its outset ended the role of the Lord Chancellor as Head of the Judiciary and President of the Chancery Division of the High Court, plus their role as Speaker of the House of Lords. Now as to the first two changes I don't actually take any particular issue with them. The title Head of the Judiciary was only conferred upon the Lord Chancellor by the 1870 Act and is therefore relatively recent invention. The Lord Chancellor's role in Chancery had become more and more a practical fiction so it made eminent sense to create the new office of Chancellor of the High Court to replace the office of Vice-Chancellor, who'd been carrying the administrative burden of the Chancery Division for many a year anyway. The Speakership of the House of Lords is, in my view, somewhat more debatable, but I'm sure that the modern arguments about administrative burden and the increasing complexity of that office would be weighed against a return to the status quo ante. But as I would personally prefer the office of Lord Chancellor to be drawn from the Lords, then a senior role for that office holder in the institution makes eminent sense to me. What what is perhaps more interesting is the question of influence and whether a commons role for the Lord Chancellor makes that better or worse. Now, in 2007, Lord Faulkner, uh, the sitting Lord Chancellor, took on responsibility for a new department, the Ministry of Justice, which brought together courts, legal aid, prisons, and probation all under one roof. Constitutional affairs and related topics remained with the MOJ until 2010, when the new office of the Deputy Prime Minister, then led by Nick Clegg, took them away. Plus issues such as freedom of information, which slightly at a slightly later date went into the cabinet office and which have somewhat oddly, in my view, remained there. Now, in that year of 2007, when Gordon Brown became prime minister, Jack Straw became the first Lord Chancellor from the Commons in many generations. And the office has remained there in the ensuing uh, years. Three of us have been able to wear the Lord Chancellor's wig, but the rest have not. And the office lies at number five or number six in the cabinet pecking order. Uh, and it's interesting to note that the most recent change of personnel was described as a demotion for that person, uh, who then insisted on an extra title, namely that of Deputy Prime Minister, presumably for that reason. I've said before that I find it more than a little odd that it is Nick Clegg rather than Beckett or more that my successor would most like to emulate. But there it is. Now, perhaps the most interesting aspect of the 2005 Act was what it did not do. It did not replicate the convention that the Lord Chancellor should be a lawyer of standing. Whilst there are certain criteria in Section 2 as to what a Prime Minister might t- may take into account when recommending a, a, a person for appointment to that office, and they are their ministerial, parliamentary, practitioner or academic experience, plus any other experience that a Prime Minister considers relevant, this does not restrict the role to a lawyer. Now, the argument in favour of this wider set of criteria is, I presume, that it is the Lord Chancellor's political influence that is most important. But my strong view, however, is that this is to look at things to the wrong end of the telescope. The Lord Chancellor's oath had originally been the judicial oath for logical and clear reasons. But the 2005 Act created a wholly new one, which binds the office holder, no longer a member of the judiciary remember, to respect for the rule of law, to defend judicial independence and to provide resources for efficient and effective support for our courts. And the Lord Chancellor has to, right from the outset, command the respect and the confidence of the judiciary in the exercise of this role. And if they don't have that, then their political influence in cabinet and more generally is, I very firmly believe, undermined. Now, the creation of Her Majesty's Courts and Tribunals Service, HMCTS, back in 2012, has tried to reflect the duality of roles between the Lord Chancellor and the Lord Chief Justice. Now, rightly, judicial functions are the province of our judges. It is, however, the Lord Chancellor and their department that funds the court system and which is directly accountable to Parliament for its operation. The current arrangement with an independent chair and a board means that, in reality, neither the Lord Chief nor the Lord Chancellor has the clearest or, frankly, the closest view of things. Now, this is the worst aspect, in my view, of the mistaken premise that underlays the 2005 Act and its accompanying changes, namely that the United Kingdom is a separation of powers' constitution. We are not... And if we were, much more substantial and comprehensive constitutional reform would be necessary than the current arrangements allow. No, we operate in a system of checks and balances. And what we should be doing is to strengthen those very checks and balances. And here's my list of proposed changes to the role of Lord Chancellor. First of all, make that office only open to lawyers of standing. Secondly, Leave the Lord Chief Justice as head of the judiciary, but give the Lord Chancellor sole administrative responsibility for HMCTS. Thirdly, return the constitutional affairs brief to the Lord Chancellor and divest them of responsibility for prisons and probation. And finally, accept the premise that a Lord Chancellor can be drawn once again from the House of Lords, which I think will very much reinforce the point number one that I make about that office being open to lawyers of standing. Now, these remarks are purely designed to set the scene and to provoke debate, and I look forward to the discussion ahead. Thank you very much.
0: Robert thank you so much for that Um, incredibly interesting um, talk through the role past and present of Lord Chancellor and uh, an outline of a provocative um, set of reforms that I'm certain Jonathan and Elizabeth are going to have lots of opinions on and there's certainly lots I want to pick up on. I first wanted to pick up on something you said towards the end of your speech and which was that the Lord (laughs) Chancellor has to command the respect and confidence of the judiciary if they don't have that, then their political influence in cabinet and more generally is, you believe, undermined. But we've seen recently that political influence and the rule of law are not, in fact, always aligned. In fact, the need to uphold the rule of law as Lord chancellor might conflict with the in- political imperative to back policies which might be in conflict with the rule of law. What do you think a Lord chancellor should do when the role of politician and the role of guardian of the rule of law collide?
1: Well, having faced a couple of those tensions, I think I can draw from my own recent experience and I think one of the most interesting ones was the prerogative, uh the um, prorogation, forgive me, the prorogation case back in 2019 when uh, we were faced with a decision made by the executive that was then challenged successfully and uh, in effect overturned by the supreme court and it was a moment of tension for the constitution Uh, we were amidst the brexit crisis feelings were running high and there was a feeling that the supreme court had been thrust into the political arena in my view it was an example of those tensions being successfully resolved by the fact that the government complied with the ruling might have disagreed with it, might have made submissions uh, uh, that uh, were ultimately not accepted, but it complied with the ruling. And that was frankly because there were uh, sensible, dare I say, voices within the heart of government to make sure that that happened. And one of the most important uh, things at the beginning of that prorogation crisis that happened was the issuing of a tweet by me to defend the independence and quality of our judiciary when there'd been an unattributed number 10 briefing about alleged political motivation by the Scottish judges at the Court of First Instance. You remember one of the sources of the uh, case that eventually arrived at the Supreme Court had been a Scottish uh, decision. Uh, And I felt that was a very important moment for uh, the Lord Chancellor to uh, assert their independence, uh, not just um, from um, um, the uh, rest of cabinet, but their independent mindedness and the fact that they'd sworn an oath to uphold the independence of the judiciary. Uh, and I think it's moments like that, the deeds that Lord Chancellors carry out, that help uh, command respect and confidence from the judiciary. And certainly that was my experience for the ensuing Two years. Uh, the other example, I suppose, was the UKIM, the United Kingdom Independence, uh, the United Kingdom Internal Markets Bill, which Jonathan and I have uh, ex- extensive direct experience of. Uh, I would uh, ultimately argue that, again, it was, um, uh, although chiefly it was a law officer issue rather than a Lord Chancellor issue, that there were um, interventions that were made that uh, helped to make sure that. Uh, the prospect of a conflict between our domestic law and our international law obligations was reduced uh, before the bill those parts of the bill part three i think it was were ultimately withdrawn after a successful resolution of the negotiations by the joint committee Uh, and therefore those are are two flashpoints i can think of in recent years where uh, i would say the balance was held it's not easy Uh, I, I, I do think that as in so many parts of our constitution, a lot of this depends on the character of the person in office. But I think my proposal at point one to make sure that the lord chancellor is a lawyer of standing would go a very long way to cure the concerns that people have about the office being uh, under- undermined by uh, an office holder who perhaps doesn't fully understand the uh, context and the the um, uh, you know the, the particular sensitivity of that role and its importance at the heart of our rule of law constitution
0: Thank you, Robert. Jonathan, I want to come to you now. How do you see the conflicts between the two aspects of the role that I've described playing out? And how well do you think the current government are handling those conflicts?
2: So I think I wouldn't necessarily use the word conflict. Um, There inevitably is going to be some tension. Um, I mean, the, the, the reforms in the 2005 Act that Robert talked about were, whatever you make of them, they were, I think, legitimate attempts to reinforce the visible independence of the judiciary. I think we all would agree that you need an independent judiciary and that includes independence from the government. Uh, um, And that was not really compatible with the idea that the senior judge uh, was also a member of the government and was responsible for appointing judges and disciplining judges and and ultimately in in the end for sacking them or at least encouraging them to leave. And that was not compatible with um, the independence or the perception of independence of the judiciary. But you're always going to need somebody in government that is responsible for the administration of justice, including its funding, and for managing the relationship with the independent judiciary. So um, the point of the 20- 2005 Act, in large measure, was to make it clear who that person was and to try and set some parameters around it. Um, now, but there is always going to be some tension. There is a risk of some tension between the interests of the government of the day and the interests of the judiciary. And it's the job of the Lord Chancellor or the Secretary of State for Justice, we may come back to the question of what they're called, to manage that relationship. And there will always be some risk of tension in it, um, whether it's around funding or whether it's around the government's interest in particular cases that are being heard, or Robert referred to the prorogation case. Um, but you, you So you need some kind of uh, relationship and the interests of the two parties of that relationship will not always coincide, and it's the job of the Lord Chancellor in government to manage it. Um, and I think probably one of the things I, I will agree with Robert on is that for that relationship to be managed effectively, you need somebody of status and clout, and somebody with a strong relationship, both with with both sides of the of the relationship. Um, both judiciary and clout within government. So that would be the way I would um, summarise the nature of of the role.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. And Robert, one of the other things you said is that you prefer the role of the Office of Lord Chancellor to be drawn from the House of Lords, um, in addition to saying that you um, wanted them to be a lawyer of standing. Elizabeth, I wonder if I could come to you now. And do you agree that the role of Lord Chancellor should be drawn from the Lords? And what's your view on whether they should be a lawyer of standing or not?
3: Well, uh, first of all, I declare an interest. My brother Michael Havers was briefly Lord Chancellor. I strongly agree with absolutely everything that Robert has put forward as proposals, and I only wish we had a government would actually listen to it. Um, I feel very strongly that the Lord Chancellor Doesn't matter terribly. I mean, we've moved on from 2005. We've moved on from the view of the Labour government that it would be better to have the Lord Chancellor in the Commons. I think that was a profound mistake, but it's far too late to go back. I do agree that it should be possible to come from the Lords, but much more important is the point that Roberts made, that the Lord Chancellor should firstly be a lawyer of standing And secondly, should be somebody who understood the law uh, and was a person of status. I mean, only look at somebody like Lord Hailsham, Lord Elwyn Jones, people like that. They were number three in the country under the, um, in those days, they were an elder statesman in the cabinet. They were there to advise the cabinet how to behave, basically in the issues that arose. They were not deeply into the nitty gritty of the politics. And all of that's been lost from being number three in the country and therefore next to the prime minister, in fact, senior to the prime minister in the country, they've become five or six many of them have been non-lawyers and I have to say they had had absolutely no idea how to uphold the independence of the judiciary and there have been instances where this has been seriously apparent and I believe that the time has come and indeed longly overdue to have a man or woman of real status who is a lawyer who understands the law, understands the judges, but is not, of course, head of the judiciary. That's far past, and I only wish something could be done about it.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth. Okay, agreement. Um, agreement on one point. Um, the point on the House of Lords, Elizabeth. You'd said you think it's um, it's probably too late to to row back on that. Robert, do you agree, or do you think that is something that could could change?
1: Look, I, 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 I worded it carefully. I I think, I think we should be very open uh, to uh, a member of uh, the Lords being Lord Chancellor. Um, If if the last. And, I mean, I'm thinking back, uh, Cabinet increasingly has fewer members of the Lords in it. In fact, there's only one now who's the leader of the Lords. Uh, it was quite common to have one or two or maybe even three Cabinet Ministers who sat in the other house. I mean, Lord Carrington famously was Foreign Secretary under Margaret Thatcher, for example. And there are other examples. Uh, I can think of Lady Amos, who was Defence Secretary sitting in the Lords, for example. Uh Uh, um, uh, in more recent times. So I, I think the main reason I say that is that I want to open it up so that lawyers of quality and of real standing could then be appointed to the Lords to serve as Lord Chancellor. That would mean that we have a wide reservoir of talent to draw upon. You know, we've had some excellent examples of junior ministers in the Ministry of Justice coming to the Lords. I think of David Wolfson, for example, who's, as we know, resigned earlier this year. But Lord uh, Christopher Bellamy, who's just been appointed, is another person of standing coming in as a junior minister. Now, it's people like that, for example, who could serve, frankly, in the highest office and who would command real respect, I think, from the judiciary and also the professions. Let's not forget the professions here, because They're the third leg of the stool when it comes to the rule of law and their independence is very, very important. And as we go through a pretty turbulent time, sadly, with my profession uh, on legal aid once again, uh, that person, the Lord Chancellor, is a person who needs to command respect, confidence, and who's able to communicate with the professions in a way that I think would avoid some of these um, rather difficult uh, tensions that we see arising at the moment.
0: Elizabeth, I know you want to come in, but there's just one um, follow up. I want to ask Robert there. If you did have a Lord Chancellor coming from the House of Lords, is there a danger that that might reduce democratic scrutiny if, for instance, that person is in charge of constitutional affairs as well?
1: Well, um, I- I I suppose we've been there, haven't we? Uh, When the constitutional reform bill itself was passed, Lord Faulkner led it from the Lords. I think the important point is to make sure that the Minister of State in the Commons is somebody of uh, clout and calibre who can uh, deal with all those important points. Um, I don't think it would lead to a reduction. I think that uh, the the important point here is that, um, as Elizabeth says, the office is so. Integral to the constitution and the way it works, that it must be occupied by somebody of clout. Uh, and you know, there are going to be times when you need to draw and bring the cabinet into line. And in fact, I, there is certainly one occasion where I did do that, where there had been a particular uh, contribution made to the media by a member of cabinet that I was concerned about, and I made sure that it was on the record that uh, members of the cabinet should respect the rule of law at all times. Now that's that's part of the basic hygiene of the office. I think it becomes much easier for that person to discharge it if he or she is indeed of the, the calibre that we need and the legal background. And frankly having them in the Lords means that we have a much deeper and wider reservoir upon which to draw. Thank you. Elizabeth
0: do you wanted to come in.
3: Well I just the only thing that worries me about having the Lord Chancellor and the Lords is historically he has been, and I say he, because that was true, uh, he has been the Lord Speaker. And that's the only aspect of it. I, I think Robert's right. I think it should be open to either house. What is more important is status and clout. But if he's in the Lords, I think we just have to reflect about, would he be a minister, but the most important minister, or, um, and will that cause any difties. I suspect with the modern House of Lords, it probably won't because most of them or many of them will not have been there when there was a um, indeed, even I've been there for 15 years uh, and there's always been a Lord Speaker who was elected. But that's my only worry about it. I don't know what Robert feels about that.
1: I I have reflected on it and um, I I agree. I think time has moved on quite a lot since the time when the Lord Chancellor was Speaker. I think the nature of public affairs and business means that the time that the Lord Chancellor would need to spend in the chamber, which of course was quite a lot in the old days, is probably not going to be afforded to them now. I could see perhaps a ceremonial role, for example, the Lord Chancellor coming back to do the prorogation ceremony, which is now not the case, even though the Lord Chancellor is responsible for the commission that is set up at prorogation. uh, And therefore, you know, that could be restored. But other than the ceremonial role, I think you're probably right, Elizabeth, that I think I think now we've moved on and and I don't view that as a priority for the reforms that I want to see to the role.
0: And on the subject of those reforms, I want to talk about some of the other things you've proposed as well, Robert. So you talked about giving the Lord Chancellor full administrative responsibility for the courts, returning constitutional affairs to the role and removing responsibility for prisons and probation, presumably returning it, giving it to the Home Office. Um, Jonathan, what's, uh, what's your view of that broader set of reforms?
2: So I'm perhaps rather boringly less fussed about the precise allocation of functions in government. If you've sort of been a civil servant as long as I was, you'd have seen functions move around. Um, and what matters more than precisely where they sit is how well they're done. Um, and so I'm less bothered. I mean, I I, I think we're all agreeing with this idea that the Lord Chancellor needs to have clout. That's the word we keep using, both in government and with the judiciary and, as Robert says, with the professions. Um, uh, And the the core part of that role, I think, is always going to be managing the relationship that we've talked about between government and the administration of justice, Um, and that needs clout. I'm, I'm, I'm less bothered frankly, about um, where other functions sit. I think it would make a lot of sense for uh, responsibility for the Constitution more generally to sit with the Lord Chancellor, um, uh, because this is again about managing the relationship between different parts of the Constitution. I think that would fit. Just very, I know we've talked a lot about this question, whether it was a lawyer or not. And um, I mean, like others, I'm, um, I would certainly be open to having a Lord Chancellor from the Lords, uh, and we have examples also of law officers coming from the Lords, and there are pros and cons to it, but that has worked perfectly well. And it certainly widens the pool in terms of getting a lawyer of experience and weight, because there is likely to be more of them in the Lords, or you can appoint one there. Um, I'm I'm less convinced that it absolutely has to be a lawyer. I mean, we've had you know we've had a mixture in recent years. We've had um, David Lidington, I think, was a was a good Lord Chancellor, and he's not a lawyer. I mean, what again matters more is how good this person is, and actually whether they you know they've got to know something about the administration of justice, and they have got to care a bit about it. And I'm not convinced that every recent holder of that office has really particularly cared or known much about the administration of justice. So I think the sort of for me the quantitative judgment. Um, the quality of criteria are perhaps more important than, than a kind of checkbox about how long somebody's been a lawyer. Um, it may well be that you are more likely to find somebody who can fulfill that role with the club we talk about if they are a senior lawyer. But I wouldn't necessarily have a rigid rule. So I brought us back to that topic. But anyway, you've got my point about functions too.
0: Thank you. Elizabeth, you wanted to come in. You're on mute, Elizabeth.
1: I'm working so
3: hard to mute myself. Um, I (laughs) profoundly disagree with Jonathan, I'm afraid. I think it really does need to be a lawyer, and without wanting to be impolite, Chris Grayling was the most disastrous Lord Chancellor we had, and Liz Truss was very close behind him. It depends entirely on who the Prime Minister chooses to appoint, and if a Prime Minister doesn't want to have a uh, Lord Chancellor who is the particularly full of clout. It will be very convenient to have someone who isn't a lawyer. And the second reason is that um, the professions, as we were saying, really do need to have a senior lawyer who will understand what their concerns are and the trouble about someone who isn't a lawyer. I mean, I was told by the senior judiciary that Michael Gove learnt it extremely quickly, but he wasn't there very long. And that's another problem. And I just think the senior lawyer starts with the knowledge about how the professions work, how the judiciary work and doesn't have to learn it. And not all of them, I have to tell you, learnt it at all.
0: Thank you. Um, I want to circle back to the point on allocation of responsibilities. And Jonathan, I hear your point that, um, you know, it's for you not the kind of most important part of the reforms, but this is the Institute for Government. So it's something close to our heart? And I wanted to pick up particularly um the point on where prisons and probation will go, because as you said, Jonathan, what matters is how well these responsibilities are discharged. And I think how well they're discharged does rather depend on where they sit. Robert, where do you see prisons and probation going, um, if not sitting with the uh, with the MOJ? Well, I
1: think Jonathan's got Hit the nail on the head. It needs to go back to the home office. and the home office should be a criminal justice department. We have this rather artificial divide uh, between the point of arrest. So everything up to um so up to so up to charge, forgive me, everything up to charge is Home Office and everything after charge is MOJ and I can tell you it led to all sorts of uh, discussions, not quite turf wars, certainly not in my time, but I know in the past there have been, uh, and all sorts of arguments about who was responsible for what now? I think Jonathan's right. You know, I, I was in government seven years, and there are workarounds. There are ways in which you can bring civil servants, in particular, together to to work on 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 on, a, on 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 an issue. But I just think it's 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 more than inelegant. There's also a question mark about whether the minister responsible for the court process and the judicial element of that, the judge's role, should also be responsible for um a consequence of that process. I mean, going to prison or being on probation. I remember back at the time of 2007, a number of senior judges did question that uh, and were not terribly comfortable with this uh, marriage of, of the two, um, and that's why I raise it again as a serious issue issue. I, I think it would be far more logical, far better for the Lord Chancellor to concentrate on the administrative uh, administration of justice and our Constitution. That seems to me to be a much neater fit, plenty for them to get on with. It's a serious and substantial uh, Office of State. Um, sometimes there's a little bit of worry about whether the financial footprint uh, that one carries in, in the Cabinet is hefty enough without uh, a big delivery uh, Function, but I think that uh, with the other proposals I make, the status of that office would be uh, um, very senior in any event and would, I think, uh, propel the importance of the administration of justice further up the cabinet pecking order and that's got to be something we 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 must aim for the administration of justice is one of the most important functions of government you know we talk about defense of the realm well what are we defending we're defending a system of freedom under the law what could be more important in my view than the person who is responsible for administering it
0: Thank you, Robert. Robert, in your remarks, you also briefly mentioned the Supreme Court. I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that before we move into audience questions. Um, The Constitutional Reform Act in 2005 created a new Supreme Court for the United Kingdom, meaning that the most senior judges are now separate from the parliamentary process. Do you think that's right? What should the relationship between uh, the Supreme Court and the House of Lords be?
1: Well, personally, I wouldn't have touched it at all. I think having a Judicial Committee of Parliament uh, making law uh, is entirely consistent with our Checks and Balances Constitution. I never bought the Separation of Powers argument for one minute. Uh, I don't like the name. It's redolent of a constitutional court, which is of course it is not and must never be. Uh, However, as an institution uh, based now in the Old Middlesex Guild Hall with men and women of quality, I think it is uh, proving its worth. I think it is a World class court. It is a United Kingdom court as well, which is now led by a, a Scots lawyer and therefore, from my point of view, demonstrates how three jurisdictions can work together uh, with an apex court that deals with the uh, substantial questions of law and public importance. Um, uh, do I think that we should uh um uh, you know fundamentally now uh, reverse it or change it? Probably not. I think the most important question we should ask about it is the the criteria for which it takes cases, whether or not that is the correct uh, criteria at the moment uh, and whether or not uh, the court itself should be more uh, porous um there was a trend which i know i think is being re- i can see being reversed whereby the court would tend to sort of use its own members to almost wholly exclusively to deal with cases i think it's really important that where you've got matters affecting a particular jurisdiction you should draw upon a senior judge from that jurisdiction to sit in the Supreme Court, uh, whether it's the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales or the Lord Chief of Northern Ireland or the President of the Court of Session. And I think using, you know, being a somewhat more porous court between the different levels, the the appellate levels in our jurisdictions, I think would make it even more of a body that reflected uh, the whole breadth of our United Kingdom. And of course, you would expect me to uh, expect me to say this, Emma, as a Welshman, I'm very keen to make sure that there's at least one member of that court who is familiar with the growing body of Welsh law. We've been well served, of course, by Lord Lloyd-Jones, a distinguished Welsh lawyer, uh, but there is no absolute requirement that we have a Welsh lawyer in the court. And that was something that's something I think we should we should look at. Thank you, Jonathan.
0: What's um, your view on the the Supreme Court?
2: So I, I mean, yes, there are pros and cons. I think the creation of the Supreme Court has has been largely positive. Um, I think it's, for example, uh, it has uh, a, a better, clearer profile than the House of Lords had. I think people understand what the Supreme Court is. They may not like the label. I'm less bothered about the label. Um, uh, that They understand it is the highest court in the UK um, rather than this rather curious label of the Judicial Committee of the House of Lords. Um, part of that is is it's rather canny use of technology, the fact that it's proceedings televised uh, has a very good website where you can find out about all the proceedings. So I think there's a degree of transparency and visibility to the Supreme Court that you didn't previously have. Uh, And I think people who are interested in these things broadly understand its function. I think whether or not you agree with separation of powers as a doctrine, the idea that you now have a court that is visibly separate, you have law, the people who are interpreting the law, and applying it are visibly separate from those who make it is, I think, actually probably right. Um, you pay a price for that, um, maybe in the sense that the the senior judges are now detached from Parliament. But that I think is just part of the price you pay for having that visible separation and independence. Uh, and of course, we don't expect the rest of our judges to be co-located with the legislature. So I'm, um, I think. I I, I don't think I would seriously entertain reversing it. I don't think Robert's suggesting that. I think um, overall it's been a positive change. Uh, And there are, of course, ways, come back to this point, where the Supreme Court, like the rest of the judiciary, has to have a relationship. It's good that it has a relationship with the executive and with parliament. That doesn't have to be, that doesn't have to mean physical location. It can be done in other ways. Uh, through liaison of various kinds Uh, and maybe that makes the role of the Lord Chancellor all the more important because you don't now have the physical location the Lord Chancellor again becomes the one person who can have the contact between the different branches of the state Um, and uh, that's how I would I think it's partly for, for that office holder to fill that gap.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, I
3: agree with both Robert and Jonathan. I just pick up on the point about having judges who may not be members of the Supreme Court. That's happening already with the Northern Ireland Lord Lord Chief Justice. And I think it's an excellent idea. It happens in the um, what do they call it? The other court, uh, which sits hearing the appeals from overseas. Well, the Privy council. Sorry, I've just had a memory lapse. At my age, that's not unusual. Uh, And the Privy Council regularly has judges sitting who are not members of the Supreme Court. I think that could be done more frequently, and I think it's an excellent idea. I'm sure there should be a Welshman there always. It would be wise. The Welsh members of the House of Lords would say it was absolutely crucial, I have to say. They're very vocal, the Welsh members of the House of Lords. Um, The other point I was going to make was when the Supreme Court was created, it was really quite funny because I was told by House of Lords um, judges that in fact right around the world nobody had ever criticized us having our Supreme Court inside the House of Lords and so it was an issue from <clears throat> within the UK it was not an overseas issue but the other point that I'm um, I've got one more point I'm concerned about and I was just trying to think what it, what it was about the uh, Supreme Court, but I've lost it.
0: So I'll try and give it to you in a moment if I may. Perfect. Hmm. You let me know when you want to come in. I'm going to start moving on to some audience questions now. As you'd expect, the Bill of Rights is coming up. So let's start there. Um, yesterday, the government published legislation to introduce a British Bill of Rights to replace the Human Rights Act. And that was just days after a judge in Strasbourg blocked the deportation of asylum seekers from Britain to Rwanda. Now, the government claims that this uh, this bill expands some protections and strengthens freedoms of speech. Um, opponents claim the opposite. Um, Robert, perhaps starting with you, what do you make of this legislation?
1: Well, look, it's early days, I haven't yet had a chance to read it properly. Some of it, of course, I will be familiar with because some of it would have been legislation that I would have wanted to carry through in line with recommendations made by Spita Gross's um, review, which I started up and I selected back in 2021. Um, uh, so changes, for example, to Section 2, uh, the court may take into account uh, Strasbourg jurisprudence I'm entirely in favour of. I might well have gone further than Sir Peter's recommendations on section three in the read-down provisions, which I've always found to be somewhat problematic, uh, bringing the courts into a rather difficult role with regard to the construing of primary legislation. um, Where I think I part company with the thinking of the current Lord Chancellor is about uh, uh, the creation of uh, new so-called domestic rights. So let's take trial by jury. Um, I can't really see what um, the elevation of a right to trial by jury to, to in this bill actually achieves. Uh, the right to trial by jury is underpinned by primary legislation. The Juries Act 1974, as amended, and its predecessor acts have enshrined that in primary legislation. Uh, and and as he rightly said yesterday, he's going to have to take into account the differing uh, facets of jury trial in the other jurisdictions. Uh, its use is somewhat different in Scotland. And of course, in Northern Ireland, we know its uses. It has been uh, the subject of restrictions as well for understandable reasons. And if the right to jury trial is to be a fundamental um, aspect of our justice system, what then of trial by magistrates or, or indeed other types of tribunals? Uh, I, I think that uh, all this needs to be thought through very carefully. Uh, I have, in uh, previous lectures before uh, the bill was published, expressed concerns that inadvertently a whole new breed of domestic rights will be created by this bill, which uh, could well go uh, far beyond the fundamental rights set out in the ECHR and would certainly from my uh, centre-right perspective of politics not necessarily be a good thing at all, being a much more more fan of the the statute-based English common law system. And therefore, um, uh, on one level, it seems to me that uh, some of these uh, extra so-called rights are window dressing, mm-hmm. but at another level, they could sow uh, some confusion and in, in, inadvertently draw the judiciary uh, domestically more into the political arena rather than away from it, which I think, um, you know, a sensible government would seek to do. So um, I, th- I think ultimately, from my preliminary uh, understanding of the bill, um I, I think one could say this that at best it, it, it um, uh, re- reiterates the current convention rights in a schedule and at worst so some uh, confusion uh, as to whether or not those rights will uh, uh um somehow be um diverted from or, or changed or or or, 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 or um, built upon in a in a domestic uh, uh court setting and 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 i don't see that as uh, uh, at all in any way um desirable uh, when it comes to um the um uh, you know the importance of 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 human rights in in our system thank you Robert. i'm glad to note that he had wished to remain signatories to the convention but um we've got to make sure that we don't set up conflicts that could undermine our our future membership
0: thank you Jonathan, um, what's your view of the bill?
2: So I don't think the bill uh, enhances the protection of rights at all. Um, It certainly doesn't create any new rights. Um, The only new right that is mentioned is the right to jury trial. And as Robert has said, um, all that is being said there is that you get a right to jury trial where the law gives you one. So that doesn't add anything at all. Um, I think the bill, to take Robert's last point, does set up a conflict. Um, with the ECHR and with Strasbourg, um, in various ways, uh, although it retains the list of rights in the convention unchanged, in various ways it directs the courts to take a restrictive view of those rights. We haven't got time to go through the whole bill now, but there are various ways in which the bill directs the courts as to how it is to interpret particular rights and what weight is to give to particular considerations, including Parliament's assessment of the way in which different rights and interests can be balanced. Um, And it seems to me that the only point of doing that is to um, reduce the number of claims that, in the first place, claims that are brought because of the requirement for for permission, there's a new requirement for permission, and reducing the number of um, claims that succeed So the consequence of that must be, if it works, this bill, um, that fewer cases will succeed in the domestic courts because the courts are being directed to take a narrow interpretation. That is then likely to lead to more cases going to Strasbourg because that's the only recourse that unsuccessful claimants will then have. Um, And Strasbourg, of course, won't be banned at all by this bill. So Strasbourg will simply apply the convention as it sees it. Um, And the the likelihood must be, nobody will really know, but the likelihood must be that cases that have failed in the UK courts will be more likely to succeed in Strasbourg. And therefore, so long as we're in the Convention, uh, the UK government will have either to comply with those judgments, in which case what will have been achieved? Nothing. Or it will have to decide to defy Strasbourg rulings uh, and prefer the ruling of the UK courts. And that sets up exactly the conflict that Robert's mentioned, uh, ultimately putting us in breach of our international obligations under the convention. So um, I've got, you probably gather, I've got some concerns about the bill as to whether it really achieves anything. And if it does achieve anything, uh, apart from creating a lot of complicated new law, it risks setting up that very conflict um, which, it's going
0: to be a problem thank you elizabeth did you want to come in just sorry just yeah the point i wanted to make earlier
3: was you can't possibly have a separation of powers while the executive is in parliament and so this idea that you had to get the judiciary out really doesn't work as being a separation of powers point but moving i'm i particularly agree with what jonathan has said we had a very interesting question in the lords this morning on the fact that for the ministers, for goodness sake, as well as judges, to be able to disregard the decisions of the court at Strasbourg is absolutely bound to raise a serious conflict, just as Jonathan was saying, and I don't think that will get through the Lords. In fact, I'm more or less certain it won't, because conservative peers are much more likely to vote against government than conservative members of of the House of Commons. And then we will have quite a lot of what they call ping pong. But I certainly hope that that part doesn't succeed. But that, I suspect, is the real crux of what the government wants. So they can send refugees to Rwanda without the ECHR telling them they can't.
0: I'm going to move on. We've got lots of questions coming in. So I'm going to move on to something else that's coming up. There's a, there are lots of questions on different tensions or perceived tensions in the role of Lord Chancellor um, and something particular on budget. So uh, one person, David Newton, who's a solicitor, asks, is there a tension between the oath of Lord Chancellor to ensure the provision of resources for efficient and effective support of the courts and the seeming political requirement for budget reductions? Um, Robert, I think I'm going
1: to come to you first on that. Having wrestled with that, I would say there is attention. I don't think there's a, you know, a, a, a necessary attention that would mean that the Lord Chancellor is in breach of their oath every time that there's a, a public spending round. I mean, I, I was relatively fortunate in that the public spending was responsible for did basis in the budget. Not as much, of course, as everybody would want to see. But, for example, the allocation. Of court days in the Crown Court went up as a result of decisions made by me in consultation with the Lord Chief Justice. What I think is important is that perhaps this isn't fully understood that the Lord Chief Justice, of course, has absolutely the right to uh, either approach the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer or indeed the Prime Minister to make recommendations or uh, not recommendations to make observations, I should say, about uh, aspects of the administration of justice and the effect of any financial settlement upon them. A sensible Lord Chancellor will work closely with the Lord Chief Justice in order to communicate their concerns or observations well before the need for any direct Uh, bilateral discussion if you like uh, so that uh, by the time the settlement is reached the uh, uh, the judiciary are as satisfied as they can be that they will be able to discharge their function Um, uh, you know that's not to say there couldn't be a position where in times of extreme financial pressure uh, there is a disagreement between the Lord Chancellor and the Lord Chief Justice but as I say I think that whilst I accept the tensions exist it is the uh, indeed. Elizabeth, did you want to come in on that question?
0: Jonathan?
2: Um, no, only really to say this is, this is a sort of, um, paradigm example of where the need for clout comes in. I mean, it can't be the case that, that statute requires any particular level of funding. So I agree with Rob, but you're not here talking about the moment at which the, the oath is breached. But uh, and and all departments will be bidding for funding, but this is where you know the 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 status and the importance of the administration of justice in the queue for funding has to matter, and it's the Lord Chancellor who has to go in and and back for it.
0: Thank you. Okay, next question, and I knew this would come up. Um, should we have a codified, a written constitution, and um, to go alongside the Bill of Rights? Who wants to jump in first on that one? Robert, you've unmuted.
1: Well, well can I can jump in and say no. Uh, if, we, if we do that, there are consequences that follow, which means that we need a, a body to police that written constitution. That would need to be a court. I think we need a constitutional court. Uh, I, I I don't want a constitutional court for the United Kingdom. We all that leads to, uh, it means politics in the courts and I think that would be a very worrying situation. I want our judges to be men and women of legal merit and quality and I have to say we haven't talked about the appointment of judges. I think the JAC, the Judicial Appointments Commission, is doing a very good job actually uh, and whilst I think that there's probably a bit more of a role for the Lord Chancellor in having a, a selection of perhaps one or uh, of two names to, to advise with regard to a, of senior judges, I think that uh, 99% of the work that's being done by the Independent Appointments Commission is excellent, and I certainly would not want to see parliamentary committees asking questions of judicial candidates for the Supreme Court about their um, uh, their political views uh, in any way at all.
0: Elizabeth, do you want to come in on the question of a um, written constitution?
3: I totally agree with Robert. I think it would be a disastrous step forward, particularly because it would take an absolute lifetime for everybody to agree what sort of constitutional reform we had. First of all, you would have to have some sort of Royal Commission, which would take ages, followed by all sorts of disagreement. Um, And you only have to look at some disastrous aspects of the American Constitution like the right to bear arms to see how easily it could be misunderstood and how easily it could be argued over with the need for the constitutional court which they have in germany and i'm not at all sure that that is a very happy situation no i'm
0: against it thank you jonathan you wanted to come in too.
2: Well, now I'm finding very boringly I'm going to agree. Um, I don't think we should try and have a written constitution uh, because I think it'll take forever and we'll never get one. Um, I, I do think we need and should have constitutional reform, um, uh, which you know may just have to be done by primary legislation and we accept that primary legislation can be changed, but that doesn't mean you don't try and reform aspects of the constitution. And I've got my own kind of little wish list and I'm sure others do too. Mine would include something on the ministerial code and standards of conduct in government, it would include um, the use of secondary legislation and the scrutiny of legislation, and it would include something around the civil service and appointments actually generally, um, some of which I know the IFG are looking at. So that may end up being a plug for a forthcoming event.
0: Exactly. Uh, Watch this space, there'll be more coming from the IFG on those subjects. I think possibly the last question we're going to have time for comes back to the question of whether the Lord Chancellor should be a lawyer um, or a lawyer of standing. And um, Andrew Turnbull says, should this apply to other um, positions in government? So, for instance, um, should the Secretary of State for Defence um, have a military background? Um, I think really the, the question there is, what's so special about the role of Lord Chancellor? Or do you agree that other roles should have similar requirements?
1: Well, well, having taken the oath in, in Welsh and English, by the way, I think that's what marks out the Lord Chancellor. They're not just, I'm going to say, they're not just any old cabinet minister. They have a cabinet minister who has an extra oath of office. And and I can remember when I was sworn in uh, uh, as Lord Chancellor, I was the first, uh, apart from the, the president of the council, had to be sworn in to then administer the Privy Council uh, business. And I was the next minister to be sworn in. And I took two oaths. Uh, and that meant I went before the Prime Minister, and then I took an extra over the rest of them. And that's why I think there's a particular. Uh, and whilst I think it's great to have round pegs and round holes, I mean, Ben Wallace, you know, his experience is certainly helping in the MOG, in, in I, I don't take the view that. The cabinet posts would automatically need that specialist uh, to be in them um, uh, because of the particular specialism and the particular oath. The Lord Chancellor is 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 a different uh, is a different uh, uh, species. I'm afraid.
0: Thank you, Robert and Jonathan. I think you put your hand up first. Then Elizabeth, I'm going to come to you.
2: Thank you. Um... Well, as somebody was slightly more relaxed about the need, even for the Lord Chancellor to be a lawyer, um, I mean, I think it's a good thing if ministers know something about the topic for which they're responsible. <laughs> um, uh, and I, so that would be a good thing. I also think, just to go back to a point I think Elizabeth made earlier, it's a good thing if ministers can stay in post for long enough to get a grip of their brief. And that um, <coughs> applies perhaps particularly to the Lord Chancellor, but I think it applies to ministers generally. Um, that tends not to happen and we haven't mentioned the law officers very much in this so I'm just going to put in a quick reference to the one the one role which is in a way perhaps even more unusual than that of Lord Chancellor is that of Attorney General and that person jolly well does need to be a lawyer and I for one would be up for having some more clear criteria as to what kind of lawyer and what level of seniority the law officers should have um, and we don't really have any. It's all completely informal. There's an understanding that it needs to be a lawyer of, of um, some kind of status. Um, but I would tighten that up.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth.
3: I particularly, I mean, I agree with what both the former speakers have said. I would just like to say something about the Attorney General. Uh, my brother was Attorney General before he became Lord Chancellor, and I think it is crucial, as Jonathan said, to have somebody. You actually need for Attorney General also somebody as standing, somebody who is a senior lawyer with a very wide experience, if possible, right across the board. So to have some knowledge of criminal law and having been at the bar, prosecuting or defending in criminal cases, as well as in big civil cases, is actually very important.
0: Thank you very much, Robert. You're going to get the last
1: word. I am, and I'm going to shamelessly plug my IFG paper on the law oh, officers published only days ago. Um, I don't actually uh, make that particular recommendation because I, I I am prepared to rely upon convention and that understanding. What is the most important thing about the law officers is that having been solicitor general for five years, you have to be scrupulous about when you're making decisions as a lawyer. So, for example, an unduly lenient sentence case, you're looking at it, you've got to look at it as a lawyer and nothing else. And those moments when the political context is important and you need to understand that uh, as you uh, go about your your work and seek to educate and inform other parliamentarians about the role of the law officers. It can be done Uh, and my worry is that uh, if we have for example an incumbent who doesn't command confidence we throw the baby out with the bath water take the law officers out of parliament altogether and i'm afraid you will see a concomitant concomitant reduction in their influence within government i think that would be a retrograde step for the law officers of england and wales
0: thank you robert it is now two o'clock so i am sadly going to have to draw this event to a close that's all we've got time for Um, thank you so much to Robert for opening the discussion um, with your fascinating speech and to Jonathan and Elizabeth for your um, responses and for the fascinating discussion that we've had. Um, Lots of areas of agreement, um, perhaps more than I was expecting, but um, some areas of disagreement too. So thank you to all our speakers. Thank you to the audience um, for listening along and sending in lots of brilliant questions. And as Robert has said, um, please do go to the IFG website um, and download his paper for us um, on the role of law offices just out and full of lots of very relevant um, uh, questions that we discussed today. Thank you everybody. Thanks for watching and um, see you again soon at another IFG event. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more and if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk
2: slash events.